0: Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. You are listening to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, and this is me, Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, we've got Elliot, Paul and Tim... Yankee Gunner, Puzzling in My Pants, and Storberto, you know the names by now. Reviewing the Stoke match. Difficult one to assess, really, because a point at Stoke isn't a bad result, especially when they've beaten a lot of the big teams at home this year. But in the context of um, the last two matches, Anfield and obviously this one, two points out of six isn't ideal when you're going for the title. So, a bit disappointing, but I mean, we could have lost the game. Second half, they had some good chances, but Czech was a... Check, wasn't he, really? Made to make excellent stops, and uh, his, his command of the penalty box again, very good. That's what we bought him for, and he's doing the job very very well. So, yeah, we could have won. zero had a good chance in the first half. Great pass by Campbell, again. Those passes, ooh, I love those passes. Wasn't the best finish in the world. Don't know, good goalkeeping, definitely. But we had a good chance to score then. Joel Campbell had a good chance in the second half. Couldn't finish it. So, yeah. Didn't create many chances, but when you don't have Urzel on the side, a player who can create four or five chances himself, you're going to miss it. I thought Wenger pretty much said post-match. Every team in the world would miss me as Ozil. Alexis Sanchez wasn't ready. I did think if he was ready, if he was on the bench, he might have won the game for us. If he was sharp enough, because he's got the quality. I thought there were spaces to be exploited, but we couldn't really do that. Shame. So, yeah. I suppose you have to take the point and get on with it. and hope if, if we can beat Chelsea, then... All will be forgotten, and uh, we can move on in our quest for this title. Anyway, ramble over, hand over to the guys. Enjoy the podcast, back after Chelsea.
1: Trip to Mordor yields one point, but will it be enough for us to secure our precious at the end of the season? This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, at Yankee Gunner. Uh, also worth noting... That I uh, do not do a great Gollum impression, but there are other things that I bring to the table. And we will uh, hopefully see some of those later, although I can't guarantee that there really are anything. Is anything? Grammar's ap- am- among the things. Anyway, let's get to the people who can talk. Uh, one of them is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at and in my pants. Uh Bonsoir, Paul.
2: Among the two things I bring to the pod. Sorry was my little Monty Python Kind of like treat. the number
1: of times you watch a match.
2: Yeah, uh, um, not in this case. So I'm not actually qualified to comment, but that's never stopped us before. So here goes.
1: Nope, not at all. I watched it on a phone, and I'm going to talk the shit out of it. <laughs> um, the other guy who's here was there uh, and survived and lived to tell about it and can tell us about uh, all the lovely Aaron Ramsey chants that he heard, because I hear there are some great ones that they have up there. His name is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stillberto, and you can read him on Blog, among other places around the various interwebs. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. Um, okay, so just real quick, uh, Tim, I just want to give you like two minutes to just vent about what it's like to be at Stoke, how vile the chants are, and why they are still so obsessed with
0: us.
3: Yeah, it's, it's it's really, really odd. It's really odd. I, I tweeted about this on the morning of the game, and I, I really reject this idea, you know, that it's hostile there in the true sense of the word hostile. Um, you know, I've watched this play in Rome. I've watched this play in Athens in, like, crumbling old stadium when we played Panathinaikos. I've seen this play in Istanbul. I've seen this play in Kiev. That's hostile. This isn't hostile. This is circus-level shite, quite frankly. Um, you know, the Arsene Wenger masks and the waving the arms and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a bit silly, really, and it's, it's not much more. And I don't think anyone could really say they're intimidated by it per se. It's just, it's a bit stupid and it's a bit circus. And, you know, that's, that's not necessarily a, a terrible thing. You know, mm-hmm. fans have to kind of make their entertainment going to a game and whatnot. Um, I mean, the, the Ramsey stuff, it's been going on for years. And, um, I, I noticed Peter Coates, the Stoke chairman today was moved to comment on it. And he said, Oh, I didn't hear the chance to which it's like, well, where were you watching the game exactly? <laughs> because <laughs> it was pretty clear and, um, understand very, very well. This is not a minority. This is absolutely not a minority. The whole stadium was seeing. um, this song I'm sure you all heard. They do it every single year. And the only reason the Stoke chairman has commented this time is because the game was on Sky and everyone heard it. And uh, Stoke Arsenal isn't often on Sky, um, but it was this time. Um, Not a lot happened in the game. And you see this quite a lot, a bit like when we played Chelsea at the end of last season and the boring, boring Chelsea chant went up. Because the game was so boring, that became the main story. And this is kind of similar in that not a lot happened in the game. And so it's really the only serious talking point. And that's why the Stoke chairman, after six years of this going on, has finally said, oh, I didn't hear anything, but if it happened, you know, that's bad and blah, blah, blah. And ultimately, you know, it's it, it's not hugely... It's it's silly, it's stupid. I really, I can't get my head around... And to my eternal discredit, i tried to engage with some Stoke fans about this, not just this time, but over the years, like honestly, like, just please explain to me what your problem with Aaron Ramsey is. And the conclusion I've come to is I never get a straight answer because they know that if they say it out loud, it's just going to sound like, you know, sub-high school-girl-rubbish. It's basically because he didn't answer a text message, which is, you know, the most pathetic thing I think I've ever heard. Um, and it's important not to get out to Portland. It's not, you know, the worst thing that's happened. It's not the worst thing that's been chanted in a stadium. It's just a bit silly. I don't think it it doesn't. I don't have the impression it bothers Aaron Ramsey in the slightest. Nothing in any of his performances there since he's gone back suggests any kind of psychological scarring or anything like that. I think he probably thinks, well, do you know what? Everyone can hear you doing this. And, you know, the, the kind of condemnation has been universal. It's not just Arsenal fans. Everyone's just saying, like, what on earth is this about? Um, even, you know, neutrals and journalists and everything. And I'm sure Anne Ramsey thinks a bit like I do, which is just like, you know what, get on with it because everyone thinks you sound ridiculous, which you do. And ultimately it's it's just sideshow um stuff really. So mm-hmm. it's you know, it's not genuinely intimidating going there or anything like that. Um it used to be at Stoke they do you know, they certainly have an element of their support, but I think things have changed a little bit now. And uh but you know, I I was I was there the day, round broke his leg and I remember very well what the reactions were. I was sat quite near the Stoke fans that day. And uh, I remember very well what their reaction was. He was booed off, and even when the ambulance came on the pitch, they booed him off, um, which is just like a preposterous way to <laughs> react, really. Um, so, you know, it's not just in view of his supposed actions in light of it. They they started with the chip on their shoulder, and really all it is, it's a mixture of persecution complex and a guilty conscience, I think, all rolled into one. Um, but, you know, I don't think it really has any great effects on anything other than making them look a bit dim.
1: Yeah, they do a great job of that. I think we probably devoted more than enough time to it already. So let's move on. That's enough on the Stoke match. So it's Chelsea on the weekend. No, I'm kidding. Um, Paul, Oxley chamberlain got the start in midfield. Uh, Ozil didn't play. And right there, it's going to be difficult. I mean, Oxley chamberlain was never going to be Mesut Ozil. What did you think about how our midfield looked with Ox in there?
2: Well, I think it's probably worth saying. So we named our big four earlier in the season, the key four for this team to uh, perform and have a chance. And just to remind those, it was Coughlin, uh, Cazorla, uh, Ozil and Sanchez has been the the pieces.
1: How many played played at the weekend? I can't remember. I
2: I feel like it was zero. I believe this was the first time that we had zero playing. With uh, Ozil dropping out, uh, and it shows. So that's a
1: bad number. That's a bad. It's not number. a good number of the people you need to win. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but
2: I mean, so
1: Oxlade-Chamberlain hadn't impressed on the wing. He he had done okay in midfield yeah. in the FA Cup game. This was a chance for him to maybe start to turn turn the tide a little bit. His passing wasn't great. What, what did you make of how it impacted the midfield in general?
2: Um, I thought he was so. I thought he was a bit poor. He was hit and miss. It wasn't all bad. But we had a few people who were profligate with the ball, including our two centre backs, uh, Oxlade Chamberlain and Walcott. And when you add those all together, spilling the ball unnecessarily to a very physical game, then. uh, And the fact that Stoke were very happy with a choppy start stop, fouls, you know, it, it just disrupted the whole rhythm. We were unable to build from the back. Um, and, you know, very often we were looking to pass through Oxlade-Chamberlain and Ramsey as your go-to guys, and uh, I think Ramsey overall did pretty well, but I think Oxlade-Chamberlain, this was a good opportunity for him, and I think he was, I mean, he showed some of his teeth in front of goal. He had a couple of good, two or three good cracks on goal, Um, a deflection, a curler that got tipped over, very oxlade Chamberlain, um, some good running at them, but but not enough really. So I mean it was a good opportunity for him. I I, I feel like he didn't take it, um, and mm-hmm. so I, I think that certainly added to our difficulties because when you look at it, we produced very little at the end of the day, very few shots, very little in the final third. And kind of very few really good chances coming through midfield. And certainly part of that is the loss of Ozil and the fact that his replacement was Oxlade Chamberlain. And you would have fancied him to do well maybe before the season started, but he's just, he continues to have that bit of a funk. I hope it's a lack of confidence because the alternative wouldn't be a pretty answer. Um, Yeah, I think.
1: I I mean. Go ahead.
2: I was just going to say. I mean, I think we expect more from him. I think we still do quite a bit more than this. And uh, it wasn't all, it wasn't universally bad. He wasn't terrible, but uh, he certainly had plenty of moments where he didn't look up to that job in that position.
1: Yeah, and I mean, as the squad gets deeper, and as players like Joe Campbell step up and and show that they have value, it only pushes Ox further down the pecking order. And so, and, you know, as, as harsh as it sounds, these are chances for him to sort of bite back and establish himself as a real option. I'm not sure you could say he did that. Um, uh, interesting question, I thought, Tim, from uh, Assad at Assad Baker on Twitter. He said, if Cock wasn't injured and our midfield axis was Cock Ramsey, would the results have been any different? And it, the reason I thought this was such an interesting question is, as important as Cochlin has been, uh, you know in watching oxley Chamberlain, I thought we had a little more discipline and, and shape to our, our midfield actually at Stoke than we'd had in previous games. Where do you sort of lay the, I, I don't like to use the word blame, but what do you think is the crux of the issue in midfield and is is more of this down to Ramsey's buccaneering instincts you didn't you didn't get to talk about the basketball game that was uh, <laughs> Liverpool Arsenal and i we did mention that for you, but it's yeah, so. – is, is this midfield issue we're seeing really starting to centre around how Ramsey wants to play in that position?
3: Um, I think it's a little bit harsh to lay it all at Ramsey. I, I, I think um, Paul hit the nail on the head in the last podcast in that Flamini and Ramsey can play well individually, but still not match up as a partnership. I thought on this occasion, in view of what happened at Anfield, I think Ramsey in particular was notably more conservative um, and understandably so, because we were so open against Liverpool and we could not afford to do that. Um, particularly with the attacking players we had missing. Um, but then you saw the cost of that. Ram- Rams, I thought Ramsey had a really good game against Stoke. I thought he was nice and disciplined in control. Um, didn't waste the ball very much. Had he had a bit more ahead of him, I think he'd have really stood out. But, you know, it's, it's that balance question again. You, you saw what happened to us as an attacking force. Um, Ramsey was a little bit more conservative and particularly on a day when we're missing someone like Alexis and someone like Ozil, it it really had an effect on how dangerous we look going forward, because when you look against Liverpool, you know, I think Ramsey did slightly overcommit, but he scores the first goal we get the corner as a result of him going forward and having a shot cleared off the line, which Rube then scores, so, you know, he he was a big part of the reason we, we scored twice in the first half at Anfield. So mm-hmm. it's, it's just that question of balance. And to me, you know, Ramsey Flameny just, just doesn't really work. And that's why, um, you know, my, my kind of appraisal of Oxlade Chamberlain's performance, I, mean, I thought it was very six, seven out of ten kind of thing. But, you know, again, a bit like the Sunderland game, that's, that's all three of our first choice central midfielders out. And, you know, Flamini, Ramsey and Chamberlain, have those three ever played together before, I can't think that they have. Um, and, you know, Chamberlain trying to play in a slightly more creative role, which isn't really his game anyway. I think he's more of a number eight than a number ten if he's going to play in the middle. Um, and, you know, you're looking at him to be our creator when, you know, we've, we've got, when we're missing big players, it's, it's, it's a very big ask, I think. And, um, And I think you just, you just saw two sides of, you know, the way that this midfield of Flamini and Ramsey is unsatisfying, basically. They were too open against Liverpool. They were a bit more kind of conservative against Stoke, but then it just lacked imagination. Um, to answer the question about would the results be different with Cocholam compared to Flamini? Um, I mean, we haven't dropped that many points. So it's, you know, it hasn't, hasn't had a catastrophic effect as yet. I think we were saying quite a lot over the festive period, kind of that against big teams, it might come up short, and, or sorry, better teams. And I think that's been the case. I think, it well, I think we're worked.
1: averaging the same points per game without Coughlin than we were yeah. with Coughlin. I mean, yeah. but, but maybe we can replace results with performances. I mean, that kind of chaotic midfield vanishing act. I mean, is, yeah. is this a Flamini issue or is this a Santi Cazorla issue?
3: I think it's probably slightly more a Casola one. The reason I think it would be slightly better with Kokolan is A, he's slightly better than Flamini, um, and B, actually, I think his distribution is quite a bit better as well. Um, even if he's not, you know, the Casola style of ball-playing midfielder, um, it's a part of his game that's really come on this season. And, you know, his passing, he spreads the play quite nicely, whereas, you know, Flamini's quite a bit more... Um, quite a bit more conservative and mm-hmm. I know Paul made a kind of reference to the centre-backs turning over the ball and I know Adrian Clark made quite a big deal of that in the, in the, the breakdown on Arsenal.com and I think a consequence of that the passes he picked out where, um, where our centre-halves gave the ball away was because they just didn't have that midfielder to give it to so every time they gave it away they were having to kind of stride up to the halfway line and look to get it that basically, there was no building of the play. It was with the centre-halves, and they had to look immediately for someone like Walcott and Chamberlain with no link in between. And and that's what we were really missing um, yesterday. So, yes, I think it's probably more of a um, we haven't got Cazorla than we're having to make do with Flamini issue um, at the moment. And I hope that Elneny can can you know bridge that gap for us.
1: Well, quick question for you on that, and I'll stay with you just for a second. Any possibility, sneaky chance maybe that Elneny isn't a Flamini upgrade but will play the Kazorla role while Kazorla's out and Ramsey will get moved back to his sort of nominally right-wing position he was playing when we were really hitting the heights earlier this season?
3: There's a chance of that, but I'd like to think that he bought a player that can partner Ramsey just because Ramsey in the middle is the future um of this midfield, whether it's the immediate future or the near future, it's the future and we've got to buy somebody that can play with him. Um you know, whether LN is that personal, whether they'll look to do that in the summer, I don't know, but I think they kind of expedited um this transfer. They got it done quite early. Um had it not been for the home office it would have been done by like January the second. You know, they had this done very early and I think that's because they realised the urgency of the situation and that, to me, means that they wanted someone that could play with the personnel we've got right now, i.e. Ramsey. Um, so there there is a chance of that, certainly. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't put money on any starting against Chelsea. Um, I think Burnley might be the game that they look to give him a kind of full debut. But there's a possibility, but I, I'd like to think not, to be honest.
1: Okay. I, I just thought, you know, if you look at when we were most affected this season, our front four, so to speak, were Ozil, Alexis, Walcott, and Ramsey. Um, and behind them, you had Cazorla and Coughlin, and both of those are missing. And if you say, well, you know, Elneny has more similarities to a Cazorla in some respects than to a Cochlin. and I don't know. I haven't seen him enough to know that, but a lot of people say he actually distributes well, he's good on the ball. Um, you know, maybe you try to reproduce as much of that front four as you can um, you know, where we were so effective. Paul, I mean, for you, it wasn't a great day by Axelie Chamberlain. It is going to, you know, our midfield needs some reshuffling, and, and neither Cazorla or Cochran are coming back anytime soon. How do you see it shaping up with Elneny coming in now? And and is, do you just see it being a like-for-like Flamini, Elneny, swap, and, and everything else stays the same?
2: Well, I guess I'm, I'd say I'm not sure, but I think we should prepare ourselves that this is more Gabriel- than anything else in the sense that, uh, you know, Arsene may well hold faith in Flamini. He's not a great one for just cavalierly dropping somebody who's done pretty decently while the results have held up. Now, I think we all see his shortcomings, but at the same time, uh, you know, Gabriel came and was there for quite a while for us as an insurance policy in case anybody else got injured. And it may be that Arson looks at Elneny as a medium-long-term thing for his own good and for the sake of the squad and doesn't think it's kind of magic fairy dust and we just put him in there and we're automatically better. We could play worse. Uh, he could be like better but play worse or you know have a two or three really big cock-ups Which sets him back and does us no favors. And the safest
1: How many fewer cock ups would that be than Flamini, just out of curiosity?
2: A lot, because Flamini's been okay. (laughs) I mean he has. He was he was
1: I thought he was I thought he was pretty wretched against Stoke.
2: No, I thought he was pretty good. I thought he was in fact I thought he was very, very good. I mean within his limited range. I thought he played... Is, is there
1: some point, though, where, like, it, it, not being available to receive the ball and, and not helping your team build up and control the midfield, like, even if you're not actively doing things wrong, you're passively a, an obstacle to the success of your of your teammates? I
2: get that. Conversely, he is actually... <laughs> Generally available for the ball, we we just don't like to give it. Well, joke. he's on
1: the pitch. No, he's no, on the pitch, no. His positioning's
2: okay. And remember, Bojan was taken off at like sixty something minutes because he hadn't fucking seen the ball, and there's a reason for that. Stoke are a dangerous team, but for most of that game, the only way they provided danger was by crosses and, and uh, you know breakaways that we normally gave them. Flamini had a very good game. Uh, you know, asterisk against it and you check at the bottom and it's he's got limited skills. But the guy, he, even against, he had one blip against Liverpool where he fed them the ball that unfortunately may have turned into a goal. But that shit happens. Anyway, um, I thought overall he had a pretty decent game for Flamini. Um, I certainly don't think he had a bad game against Stoke. And overall, again, he's done okay. His results, our results have been... Decent. I'm not sure, uh, whatever your feelings on Flamini, I'm not sure Arson's answer is to drop El Elneny in it when the guy barely knows which way is up, knows nothing. If you read about him just talking about whether he put him on the bench against Stoke, it was, I'm not sure if he's ready for that. Now, Ozil was injured, so everybody got bumped up one. I think it's 50-50 whether he would have even made the bench for Stoke. And that he talked about was just so he could get a view of the pitch and see how, you know, the physicality of it, kind of like he did with Perez. So uh, it could go either way, but I I would just caution us that we may well be uh, be uh, (laughs) overstating the likelihood that Elneny is going to play a big role as opposed to a backup role in case anything gets any worse. uh, Get his feet wet in a couple of cup games. By the time Arsene thinks El Nenny might be ready to start, um, he might still be holding faith with Flamini and Cacalano may well be back. So I don't know. I think maybe I think it could well be Gabriel we're looking at here.
1: Maybe I, the only difference I'd say with Gabriel is there were two established first choice players, the de facto captain Per Mertesacker because Arteta wasn't around, and Koscielny, one of the best centre backs in the entire league, and they were fit and they were available. So, Gabriel was coming in at a time when the first-choice players were fit and available. Elneny is coming in at a time when the first-choice, uh, both parts of the first-choice central midfield pairing are not available. Um, True. The guy who arguably could be like a second-choice like Arteta proving not to really be able to c- give us much. So, you're, you're down to an aging sort of third-fourth-choice type player in Flamini. So, I, I think I'll, it's a little different. Uh, I also think...
2: I don't... See, here's why I don't think it's that different. Uh, Gabriel was covering either one of two centre-backs. Elneny, now, he can play in two positions, but he's been brought in because we only have Flamini for the midfield uh, f- mm-hmm. from a DM standpoint. So he's still just one back, from, and we have Flamini and he's fit. Now, you know, Arson may start playing him ahead of, of, of uh, Flamini. I'd be interested to hear what Tim's thoughts are, whether he thinks he's – he's just a game or two away from taking over from Flamini or he's going to get his chance to get his feet under the table for a few months and play some minutes.
1: Yeah. I mean, also certainly the timing of, you know, having this transfer ready to go, as Tim pointed out, you know, early, early January suggests at least some urgency behind it. Sure, uh, but, we know Arson but what is...
2: if Flamini got injured? That that's urgency.
1: Yeah, that's true. But I mean, then you have Callum Chambers. Um, so, you know, there's always an option. We can always play someone out of position. Um, all right, well, look, let's move on to some actual uh, moments in the match, unless, Tim, you sort of vehemently agree or disagree with any of that and feel compelled no, no, to no, contribute. No. Okay. No. Um, all right, so, Tim, there wasn't a lot to pick from this match, but I thought the first half was actually our better performance. I mean, overall, my feeling at halftime was nothing spectacular, but nothing diabolical. We defended well, we'd created the best chance in the match at that time and away at Stoke where other teams have not taken any points, other big teams, I thought that was okay. We didn't press on. The second half was pretty diabolical. But the big chance in the first half, a Joel Campbell pass that um, Mesut would have been proud of and a Giroud shot that was saved. Do you think Giroud mishit that into the keeper? I mean, his body shape looked like he was trying to curl that far post, kind of like what he did against Liverpool.
3: I I made sure to kind of watch it again because it was at the other end, so I didn't. See it that properly, um, but I made sure to watch it again, and um, I think if you watch the angle from behind the goal, the ball's bobbling quite a lot. Um, the the pitch wasn't fantastic yesterday, um, and I, I think the ball's moving around a little bit. Um, I'm undecided on how uh, on you know how much I think he should have scored. I I think it was a fantastic piece of goalkeeping. I think it was a great save. Um, by the time Giroud gets there, um, Butland's right on top of it. And, you know, maybe if it was Theo Walcott running onto that, it might have been different because he might have got there three quarters of a second earlier and therefore Butland hasn't made, hasn't narrowed down the angle quite as much. So, I, I think it, the ball was moving about a little bit. You could see what he was trying to do, but, I mean, Butland was on top of it super quickly. Um, and, you know, you've only got to look at how close he is to the ball when the ball actually hits him. There's really not much of a gap going on there for Giroud to get into, so I I think on that occasion, I'd say that's that's more good goalkeeping um, than anything. I You know, I think what Giroud tried to do was pretty much exactly right. It was the only angle really available to him. You're not going to go for the near post, um, particularly when you're... Coming in on your stronger foot like that, the only thing you're going to do is open your body out, unless you're a bit more savvy and you see a goalkeeper rushing out and you think, oh, okay, I'll um, I'll just uh take it around him and wait for him to wait for it to hit, wait for him to hit me, um, which maybe he could have done, but I mean it all unravelled so quickly. Um, I'm not sure I've, I've got really strong feelings about that. I think it was a fantastic pass by Joel again, and he's really really showing a kind of penchant for. This kind of through ball, particularly between not just the kind of weight and quality of the pass, but he keeps finding that gap between, um, you know, the centre half and the back, And um, the kind of problem is at the moment is that the player that's probably most like those passes is Theo Walcott, but he's over on the other side, so he's the only player that's not benefiting. Um, which kind of tells you a little bit about how lopsided the team is at the moment. Yeah, they, so. ma-
2: they managed to hook up once at, at Liverpool where they both found themselves on the same side of the wing and you saw that with uh, Theo running. Yeah, that's right. In, in fact, Campbell was waiting for somebody to do something and then eventually Theo made the run and again, perfect little spot, dead weight into that area.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you don't often see... He's, he's played a few of those now and they're never over mm. they rarely cut out. You know, he just gets that weight in the trajectory of it absolutely perfect. There was um, one
2: in particular in the Liverpool game where it just looked really odd because he plopped it into... It didn't go very far and it plopped it into nowhere. It might have been for Ramsey, again on the right wing. Uh, Wasn't very deep. It was only a few yards. It seemed to be in the middle of everybody. But when you when it panned out when the when the weight died it was it was like a bowl shot where it just landed the one place that would give Ramsey the angle to get to that near post. So mm.
3: the the other thing he's he's got with his kind of delivery of those passes is um, something that a lot of the best kind of passes of the of the ball do. His body is still moving at the point of contact, like opening itself out which um which really disguises what he's about to do so you know to you know you've seen that type of pass a few times now where he really opens out the side of his foot and kind of measures that ball inside and and the way he's able to do that with such perfect weight is because his foot and his body are still moving at the point of impact um and it just puts a beautiful trajectory on the ball um it mean it kind of disguises his intention a little bit or at least it gives defenders no time to react to it. Um, and it was, it was a wonderful ball. And, it, and it's kind of, we've seen Giroud play the channels a lot in the loss this season. I think it's an element where his game's really improved because he kept just getting crowded out, um, on the edge of the box because everyone knows he's going to do his little flick. And teams have worked out that if you just put three men around him, he can't flick it anywhere. So he's really started to work the channels. And that that was a, it. Would have been a very un-Giroud goal, yeah. Um, kind of creeping in in that channel like that, and it's it's one of the kind of more pleasing elements of his game, I think, that his movement, he's varied his movement up so that he doesn't get just completely marked, clean mm-hmm. out of games quite as often as he used to. Yeah, I
2: was thinking the same well, team thing, team <laughs> thing, team, which is as 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 Giroud came running in there, he was in a position. Where he never finds himself trying to curl it around the keeper yeah. on the right side. Now, on the left side, he's found himself there from time to time, but here it was like he'd outsprinted the defense. It was really about timing, but he, he was in that classic striker's position, as you said, the Theo position, um, which, you know, maybe that was a little bit of a factor in his decision making with Butland that he hasn't really been lined up in that position too often.
1: Well, speaking of Theo. He came in for a lot of criticism in this match and after this match. um, And now he sort of seems like the person, the player being turned on du jour, which um, I don't like to see because I think that person should always be Olivier Um, I'm kidding. Humor. Gosh. Uh, So, all right, Paul, defend your boy.
2: Uh, Well, uh, I can't really. Uh, I mean, he did a few good things. Um, Probably.
1: Insert sound of my jaw dropping. Uh,
2: No, he did. But overall, I thought he was poor. I think it it will have hurt him, and he'll be a little kind of embarrassed that he was the first one taken off. Um, he was the last while he's been on a run where he's been stayed on longer and longer, and you know we've seen Joel taken off, but when we needed more and we needed a bit more security, he got he got yanked um i he didn't look i mean he didn't look. Like he was giving anybody any ship, but he looked like a guy who wasn't too pleased to be coming off, and I think he understood why he was getting pulled off. Um, no pun intended. So I, he'd had a he'd had a very poor game. I think it's his worst game in a long time. Again, you know, we shouldn't paint no more than we do with Outley Chamberlain or, or anybody. You shouldn't paint the whole thing terrible and bad. Uh, there was some okay stuff in there. Some some reasonable movement. Some, well, he could, some he, could yeah. he could have won a
1: penalty. He could have won a penalty. You know, there and, were definitely and that would have made things uh, The other
2: thing I'd say is uh, he was hurt by the fact that, and maybe part of the reason he was pulled off was because we weren't creating the kinds of opportunities that made sense to have Theo on the pitch as opposed to anyone else you might have on there. Um, and therefore mm-hmm. he was a little bit of a liability defensively because he was getting bumped around by these, second oikes from stoke i mean he was just bouncing off them um and it's been for a little i said this in, in the liverpool game it's been a while since we've seen him sitting on anybody's shoulder making those running behind and we weren't we didn't have the personnel on the field to take advantage of him and maybe tactically it didn't make sense to have him on there either but he had a poor game there's no two ways about it
1: yeah i mean tim uh uh chris martin at Chris Martin 1000 asks anyone else agree with the sentiment that we looked better and more control and had more control when Awobi replaced Theo do you agree and is this again because that gives us more of the type of of almost four man midfield in possession that we were playing with earlier in the season
3: yeah i think so i, I think again that was just a question of balance and um and you know Awobi is a dribbler um and quite a good one, quite good close control, takes care of the ball, Um, and it just you know potentially gave us a little bit of variety. Um, Obviously, he's still very raw and very young to come on and make a huge difference in a game like that. But yes, I think we exerted more control. I think in that last 20 minutes, we were in almost total control, albeit actually we left ourselves a little bit open because we were trying to go for the win, but we just didn't really have the players to do it. Um, I think, you know, with Walcott on the left, I mean, in theory, Walcott on the left should work wonderfully because, you know, in theory, he can cut in a bit like he did against Man City. But in theory, he can make those runs in behind onto his right foot. But it just doesn't seem to quite happen in the way it does when he plays on the right, when he's really good at bending those runs in and kind of snaking in behind the fullback in the centre half.
1: Well, he also Um, used to be a really good crosser. I mean, I I know we can't mention Robin Van Persie, but if I can briefly, I mean, I think he had 10 assists for him that season when Van Persie led the league for us before he left. And, you know, he's not going to cross it with his left foot. So you play him on the right and you kind of eliminate him as a a distributor to or a deliverer of crosses for Giroud.
3: Yeah, I mean, he had that one for Joel Campbell against Sunderland, but that was more exception than rule. And actually, he hesitated for a second before he did that because... I. You know, it was only when it came apparent that he absolutely had to put it on his left, foot that he did it. And, um, right? Yeah, I. It just that he just doesn't seem to quite be able to make the same runs, and you know, he he hasn't been great for the last kind of few weeks. Um, Do you feel he's, he's never, playing you, from you know, deeper
2: at the moment than he a,
3: used a to? A little bit. A little bit, yeah. And also, you know I, know, I know it shouldn't be a massive difference. He's never played on the left left like, ever. Arsenal has always been either on the right or in the center. He's never played on the left. So this is, you know, just from a basic motor perspective, this is different for him.
1: Well, well, one thing too, I mean, just real quick, and and tell me if I'm totally crazy, but if you think about a right-footed player playing on the left, he likes to make straight runs and diagonal runs in behind the center backs, right? Mm. If he's on the right when he makes those runs, he can receive the ball with the inside of his stronger foot. Yep. If he is still receiving that ball on the left, he has to either receive it with the inside of his weaker foot or the outside of his right. It's not is it? It's absolutely. not as natural a way to receive the ball, is it?
3: Absolutely, and that, that is absolutely it. And you know, like you said, he used to be able to receive it, and he had the choice between the finish. And how many times have you seen him, you know, put one across the keeper that blaster against West Brom on the last day of last season? There's a wonderful one against Villarreal in the Champions League a few years ago when he was quite a bit younger and he just kind of clipped the ball over the goalkeeper and he's it's you know, he's got that a little bit more deception um, in the way he's able to run and the way he receives the ball, which which he doesn't quite on the left. And all in all, I mean basically what he's been asked to do there in more ways than one is replace Alexis, not just structurally by being our left winger, but by being that player that produces moments rather than performances which is kind of what alexis is like you know he's rarely brilliant for 90 minutes but what he gives you is he gives you match winning moments and theo perhaps led us up the garden path by doing it in his first game on the left against man city which was a very alexis moment a brilliant curling shot from 25 yards and you think ah, oh, okay that's you know, that's replacing Alexis's contribution and he's just not really been able to do it since. No. And it's it was exacerbated at the Stoke game by, you know, having all of our creative players out and, and that completely muted him. Um, and I really, really think that, you know, for Arson Wenger, Theo Walcott on the left wing is something you absolutely you only do when you've got absolutely no other choice. And that's just the fact at the moment. We've got absolutely no other choice. So all the talk of Ramsey and Flamini being a little bit dysfunctional. You know, Theo Walker on the left is a little bit dysfunctional. And um, really it's been the surprising form of Joel Campbell that has stopped the front line being a, and a bit more of a conversation as well, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting, too. You, you think about a right-footed player on the left side curling shots to the far post, but when I think of Theo Walcott scoring goals for Arsenal, apart from the couple times he played center forward, it's right-footed shots from the right channel across yeah. the keeper low. Think about his hat trick against Croatia for England. Yeah. I mean, he kind of had it down, that shot low across the keeper from about 12, 13 yards out in the right channel. Um, you know, and, and that that was a shot he was very comfortable with. I just... I think he's a little unfortunate in the sense that our best football, in my opinion, has been played with Theo Walcott at striker. Yeah. But during this time when he's had to fill in on the left, he's not done himself any favors and may have played himself out of the starting striker job, even though I think we looked best when he was playing there.
3: Yeah, um, and, and also the form of Giroud makes that, again, yeah. more of a question.
1: Uh, but that never, Giroud never would have gotten that chance again if Alexis hadn't gone down. So in yeah. a way, it's been... Uh, a boon for Giroud and a bust for Theo. Go ahead, Paul.
2: Yeah, so is part of the issue now that Theo is a more rounded player, a more complete player, that we're asking him to do things we didn't really expect too much of him to do two years ago or three years ago when he had Sanya behind him. And, you know, when you looked at the pattern of our play when Theo used to play two or three years ago, everything revolved around... His corner, maybe not around him, but his corner, that was where the hot spot and all the activity was. And now we're using him more as a more conventional player. He's tracking back. He's, you know, he's, he's getting involved in the play. Um, and in a way, that's given us options that we used to not have with him. And I just wonder if he'd look better and be more productive, maybe counterintuitively if he went back to being a slightly less balanced player where you know, Arson lived with the fact that he wasn't going to do that much for him on the wing, told him to push up so that he could hurt, hurt them and push them back and gave him less responsibility. Um, he's kind of a little bit in... I just wonder if that's why he's playing a little deeper. Uh, you know, How many offsides did we see him get yesterday or near offsides or against Liverpool? Very, very few. He's just not in those positions anymore. He's deeper. He's playing a fuller role, which is all great and everything, but there are better players. But, on but the, the planet interesting for thing is, he's that.
1: he's still not getting involved, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you look at him and you say he still had the fewest touches in the side, um, apart from the substitutes, uh, and he played the fewest passes in the side apart from the substitutes. I mean, he played 26 passes in 71 minutes. Iwobi played 14. In 19 minutes. He did. And, um, so, and so
2: my point is, fuck it. <laughs> Let's stop asking <laughs> him to make 26 passes. Get him back to making 12 passes. But put him on the shoulder of their defenders to scare I, the shit out of them. I think you can them.
1: only do that. Yeah, I it's, think you can only do that at center forward, though. I just don't think you can afford to have a
2: wide we, player. Especially, but when he we're played, already but short. Elliott, that's what he used to do. He used to play on the right, I know, no, the he
1: used to do. Yes. But remember, that was back when we had... Sanya. A midfield, yeah, well, and also a midfield filled with possession players. Without Kazorla, without Coughlin, That's fair. you know, with Ozil out yeah, the yeah, other absolutely. day. I mean, I agree. We have so little control in midfield yeah, yeah. that our wide players need to be. In fact, I think you can make an argument that what we need right now, while Santi is out, if we're going to play Ramsey in midfield, is play a player like Owobi on the left or on the right, and just move Chambers over or whoever it is, and have that extra midfielder who can come when when we when we're in sure. possession right now. We just cannot control the midfield. And I think it's because we're short. We're short a player. Um, but, but okay, so let's just move on real quick and, and get to uh, one other aspect of the match, which was the duel of the goalkeepers. Butlin made that great save on Giroud and another great save from his header. Cech was I- imperious again. Another point you can notch in the column of John Terry was right about how many he will get for us the only time that sentence will feature in this podcast. Um, Tim, it was... It was really a stunning dueling goalkeeper performance. In the end, I think Czech was the better of the two. Uh, is this another point we can put in his column?
3: Yeah, definitely. And not just for the saves. You know, I, I thought the double save was excellent, particularly the second one. Um, and not just because he gets up and he's quick enough, but because he reads exactly what Bojan's going to do. Um, and he gets down low very quickly. He, he knows there's no chance Bojan's lifting that shot. Um and you know, so he gets down and covers the angle so quickly and that's just experience. But also just, you know, and again it's it sounds really vague and willy nilly because it's unquantifiable, but just his presence in this game, you know, he kept coming out and being positive and taking catches or punching if he couldn't catch. You know, he's doing everything he could to take the pressure off the centre halves and um, you know, just someone who wasn't ruffled um, and you know, you know, you notice one thing with Petr Cech that doesn't happen, that's happened to other Arsenal goalkeepers. When other teams get corners, they don't crowd round him in the way that, you know, we've seen done to particularly a goalkeeper like Fabianski, um, or Espina, where everyone kind of circles round him. Nobody does that to Cech because, you know, they just know they're not getting any change out of him doing that. So Cech, you know, has almost earned this pass where he pretty much gets left alone by defenders. They don't buffet him because they know as soon as he comes out and gets his arms up that it's his and there's just no point because he's not going to let it go. He's not going to be ruffled and you're just going to give a foul away. So he's almost, you know, through his kind of experience and esteem and his stature, just been given free, free, a free run of the penalty area, really. no, Nobody tries to bully him. He, it was a only those time.
2: shits at Chelsea who did it to him. Do you remember that?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe they, they, they felt, cause, you know, Chelsea didn't get that many games last year, and maybe they felt he was a bit rusty, but, you know, that's, and, and maybe he was in those opening kind of games of the season, but, um, that's certainly not happening now. And, you know, and in this type of game, I think, um, I read today that Souness said something like, any one of Arsenal's other goalkeepers over the last five to six years, Arsenal probably would have lost one nil. And, um, And yeah, I could see that. And, um, you know, he made some really good saves. Every decision he made was spot on. His kicking was spot on, even under pressure. And like I said, the pitch in the penalty area wasn't great. Um, he just didn't put a foot wrong. And where maybe there were a couple of question marks over him at Anfield, certainly in the standard and the steam that you hold him in. Um, you know, an ordinary goalkeeper wouldn't have got any flak for any of those goals, but we know he's not an ordinary goalkeeper, and you know he, he just he just showed us again what he showed us for the majority of the season. Um, and yeah, he definitely, as much as it, fit, you know, we weren't exactly under the cosh or anything at any point. He he definitely saved us a point, absolutely.
1: Yeah, uh, Paul, any praise you'd like to heap on? Check that Tim missed.
2: Yeah.
3: Um- I've I've had a bit of
2: goalkeeper envy over the last little while. I mean, I think czech has been brilliant and I wouldn't really swap him for anybody, but you see these De Gea like brilliant saves and this kind of stuff. And I think Check's been every bit as good but less dramatic. We haven't had those and I think we had two or three in this game that him sticking the leg out. I thought that was brilliant. I thought his diving fingertips st- save um the, the, the one with Bojan uh, and the one he punched round the corner where he could have played it out to their guy but so deliberately the hard part of that was and everything he did was making sure that ball exactly, went exactly where he went out to the touchline or the corner or wherever it went. Um, I thought he was sensational um, and I didn't have any goalkeeper envy. He was like a 22-year-old I mean, athleticism is wonderful. 97% of goalkeeping is all, you know, staying big, making good decisions, the boring stuff. And I think he's been boringly brilliant. And in this game, he was like, you know, a 22-year-old De Gea leaping all over the place. He was great.
1: So I tweeted as the game was winding down, this would not be, quote, a good point. Um, I kind of had a double meaning there. Partly I was saying at some point you have to turn these into three points. You can't keep getting a point away at every tough away ground or you're not going to win a title, Um, which may not be the case this season. But I also meant it's not a good point in the sense that we weren't playing well. Um, Not a lot of teams play well at Stoke. In fact, United lost there, City lost there. I think Spurs lost there. Everybody loses there. So we're actually a point up with that result. But to you, Paul, and in the context of the conversation we had following Liverpool, um, I'll ask it to you instead of my way, uh, the way that it was asked by Laurie Laker, at Laurie Laker on Twitter, who said, before this run, would you have taken two points from the last two fixtures?
2: Uh, You know, I probably wouldn't. I probably wanted, hoped, expected slightly more. Um, But the other thought was, you know, would I have taken a loss and a win? That way we would get three points out of, you know, two fixtures. And, yeah, you're a point up, but we're now unbeaten for six games in a row, as I understand it. We've had four wins and two draws. I think that's right in our last six Premier League games. And that starts to build something in your team. Um, so, And we can say, you know, we surely out of one of those two games, we should have got more. But I don't know, when you're making sausage, there's a lot of stuffing in sausage. When you're getting to your Premier League title, you know, I think Czech was right when he, uh, Walcott was talking about this and others talked about it. Czech came to them after the game and said, that was a good point. And if you think about Chelsea, they would absolutely have taken a, under Mourinho or many Chelsea teams on their way to a title or looking for a title, they would absolutely have taken a draw at uh, Stoke, and potentially a draw at Liverpool. I mean, Liverpool hurts a bit more because it felt like it was on, but it was still a pretty even match. I mean...
1: I get your point. I, you know what, though, Paul? The one, the one thing I would take issue with is just that if you look back at... T- you know, one of the things about battling for fourth for so long is I think we've forgotten what battling for a title is. The same results that feel good in the context of a top-four battle aren't good when you want to win the league. Um, the the title winners usually have a couple of grounds they rock up at and take three points where other teams wouldn't. That's that's how you distance yourself from your competition and and ultimately win the league. I mean, I know the other way you can do it is just stomp all over the bottom half, but at some point you have to start getting some really good results at some really tough places, and then you become a title winner. I mean, I don't know, you know if especially do. if you go back.
2: I don't know if we do. We may
1: not this year, yeah. but we're on pace for about 75, 76 points. I'm not saying that's what we'll wind up with, but ironically we're not really playing towards a point total that's any different than what we've been achieving over the past seven, eight, nine years. I admit the league has changed, so that, that number may look very different in context of where the league is now. But, Tim, I mean, for you, it's two points from two games that in isolation are good one point each. But in the context of what we're trying to achieve this season, do you have any misgivings about it?
3: Yeah, yeah, I do. I I fully agree with your point. I think um, on this occasion, it's the Liverpool one that that frustrates me. Um, A point at Stoke when you're without what I would regard as our four best players, um, right on the back of a very energy-sapping draw at Anfield is, is, you know, not a bad result. Uh, we should have won at liverpool liverpool aren't a good team um you know they don't have many good players we should be beating them um i think and I, as much as we showed character to go in front in that game we shouldn't have been in a situation where we had to do that i don't think um i'm i'm with you on you know you've got to go to some of these grounds and and take three points and actually my my prediction in this period was that we would I thought we'd lose to Liverpool, um, but that we'd beat Stoke, and uh, I, I'd have taken that over two draws, um, just because I don't think, as the Southampton game showed, I don't think defeat has the same ramification on this group of players as it possibly did four or five years ago. I don't get the sense from these guys that you know, their whole world's going to collapse if they lose a game. I think they they forget about it and pick themselves up pretty quickly, so if we'd lost one of these, I don't think it'd have had an enormous effect. um you know to to your point, I fully agree with and you know if, let's look at how delicately the Premier League is poised. we've got what one point on city they've got nine away games and seven home games left. We've got nine home games and seven away games, but we play each other at city. I mean that is as delicately poised as it could possibly be. And every single point is important. And that's why I'd have taken a win and a defeat out of these two games because I really, really think that every single point, maybe even every single goal, um, is going to be important. And if we can lose 4-0 at Southampton and then go and win our next three games comfortably, um, then I think we could have stood to lose one of these games and, and, you know, pick ourselves off, pick ourselves up particularly as we've got, you know, another run of home games again now, um, where we're where we're pretty strong. So yeah, I, I kind of share that misgiving and and the only thing I'd have added very quickly to you know, the Liverpool podcast had I been on it, I know this sounds really silly, but I don't think champions draw games three all. I think champions draw games one all, they draw them nil nil. Sometimes they have an off day and they might even lose three nil. But three three and I appreciate we've got lots of players missing, but 3-3 just... And I'd be interested to see some kind of stat on this. Maybe I should look it up. But I just don't have the impression that teams that win the league draw games 3-0 because I don't think they have those kind of chaotic, some things were great, some things were rubbish. I think they tend to be fairly consistent and they'll have the odd off day. But generally, they have a pretty solid base. And 3-3, you know, says to me, it's, it's a team that's still got that's just lacks maybe that 1% of know-how. Um, and, you know, in fairness, I think maybe we saw that at Stoke that we fixed things a little bit there, but it, it was the Liverpool game that worried me of the two um, in terms of us winning the league this season.
1: I know it's very different, but there was an element to the Stoke game that reminded me of the United game we played right after we'd been hammered by Chelsea. Yeah. If you remember, it was a very dire conservative draw against United that followed that. And I think we may be overcompensated slightly in the other direction. Yeah. Um,
3: I think that, that was a symptom of confidence. I think this time it was deliberate and tactical. I think it was right. We've got to be a bit tighter today. Whereas I think that man United game, it was, Oh my God, we've just been beaten and we don't want to get beaten again. But yeah, yeah, exactly. You're exactly right.
1: I'll say this too. I think sometimes your team is playing fantastically well and not getting the results, the performance deserves. And, while that doesn't necessarily win you a title either, that gives you optimism for where you're going. I look at what's happened since we beat City. 4-0 loss at Southampton. There was that 2-0 home to Bournemouth that was really dicey. The 1-0 home to Newcastle that was really dicey. The 3-3 Liverpool is 0-0 at Stoke. Those are the league fixtures. There was the the FA Cup in in the middle, but that was a pretty different team. Um, And i just say that the, the performances since the City game have really been lacking... Quality, real champion quality. And, and 7 a.m. kickoff has been chronicling it, and he, he did so again as by the numbers column, just showing how our shots are declining, our shots allowed are increasing, our passing percentages are deteriorating. Now, all of this is to be expected to some extent without Cochran, without Kazorla, without Ozo, without Alexis. Mind you, Cochran and Kazorla aren't exactly around the corner. Hopefully, El helps that. Alexis and Ozo could theoretically be back this weekend. So I think it's the combination of picking up one point over those two games while also worrying about where our performances are are taking us. Um, But, you know, I I read a lot of people saying, hey, considering how we played at Stoke in the past, nil-nil is an improvement, and I get that, but we've been playing there in the past as a fourth-place competitor. We want to be a a, a title contender now. So, Can I quickly say,
2: though, I mean, you say missing three or four of our key players is a bit of a consideration. But if I were to tell you – It's a huge consideration. Yeah, well, it's huge. If I were to tell you going into this run of games, you would be without three of your key players when we had all four of them. You would have shat your pants. So, oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I mean I, I, I well, do that anyway, much, by we? the way. Yeah. I, I, I borrow my baby's diapers. But like, the, my, my point, Paul, wasn't that it's not understandable. Right. I mean, that's where I think we have to be careful about, you know, the way we analyze things. There's a difference between saying something is not good and saying I don't understand it or it's unforgivable. Right. Like I'm analyzing what I think we're talking
2: about whether it means we're not championship grade. I mean, we're uh, I guess it is. The question is, do you assume we're going to get some of those players back and we will that? That's the question. So (laughs) that's what it comes down to. That's the question. Yeah, and I'm I assuming. I think this team <laughs> praying we are, Look, hoping. this team
1: with Alexis and Ozil and one of Kazorla or Coughlin at a minimum back in midfield, I think is is a genuine title contender. Yeah. Um, because hopefully El will slot in. So <laughs> let, let's do this. Let's just quickly because we're, we're approaching the hour mark. Let's just touch on what's coming up. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to to just be discussing a, a thrashing of Chelsea? On Monday and and put the, the poor performances behind us hopefully get Ozone Alexis back really stomp on them and and set ourselves in the right direction um, you know moving back into Champions League and, and some key fixtures ahead so I'll, I'll start with you Paul what do you anticipate in terms of getting players back um, and what do you expect from the weekend
2: in terms of getting players back so February is a really strange month maybe it's like this every year But, you know, there's three cup competition games in there, two FA Cups, assuming we beat Burnley, possibly a replay in there. That would be three. And then the Barcelona game. So you got like three or let's assume three if we uh, beat Burnley at home, which we should, uh, cup games in February. And I think about three Premier League games. And we play two in the first half of February, and then the third at the end of February is, is uh, I think, United. So we're not going to really have anybody back apart from Sanchez. Um, and Sanchez may not be match fit for Chelsea, so that's going to be interesting. He's now been out quite a long time, so he kind of needs to be played back in. It's not like he was out two weeks or three weeks. You know, Add a couple more weeks to that, and now you've got a guy who needs some match fitness. So, um, I, you know, I think we're going to be like this for a little while. Even if we stuck Sanchez in there, he mightn't be miraculous at 80 or 90 percent of his capabilities. So I think this is this for another couple of games. And then t- mid to end of February should be when we start seeing the guys coming back and starting to be match fit. And if Coquelin mm. can get back quick enough, he might get to play an FA Cup game or so to get some match fitness because he's going to have a lot of match fitness to get. So I think February is going to be a really interesting month to see if we can get people back in time to play an FA Cup game or two so they can get match fit enough. Because, you know, how do you drop Coquelin into a Premier League game when you need to win every damn game? And that's the problem from here on in. Uh, You know, how do you get your best players back and get the match fit without kind of putting them in when they're not match fit i think it's going to be a very challenging period what i think we'll do okay against chelsea they're obviously in fits and starts playing better than they were sometimes and not playing be- but i don't think they're as intimidating as they were before i think good gus Hiddink seems like quite a nice guy therefore not as intimidating um And I think what a difference a game makes. So if we win against Chelsea, we'll feel a lot different about the last two games. And if we don't, then I think we'll all be sitting around the same side of the table saying, you know, that those were two really wasted games. We'll, We'll feel the pain a lot more if we don't get a good result against Chelsea.
1: Yeah. 7 a.m. kickoff in his By the Numbers article was talking about how he would take draws in every one of our tough away games the rest of the season. Spurs, United, City. You could even throw Everton in there. But that only works if you don't drop points at home, if you defend yep. Fortress Emirates. And this really starts to look like a must-win game. You know, I hate to use that cliche, but only because there's only so many points we can afford to drop at home before we have, start having to win at Spurs, at United, at City, just to stay in the race. Um, Tim, you expect to see Ozil back, Alexis back, and Elneny start, or none, or some combination?
3: Um, I think we'll see Ozil and Alexis back. I think, to some extent, they might have been held back for this game a little bit. I'm not convinced El Nenny will start. Um, I'm really not sure what to expect from this one. Just because it's Chelsea, I'm kind of expecting tight, cagey, possibly 0-0 again. See, I but, was going to say,
1: couldn't this, couldn't this be a sneaky basketball game in the sense that they're they're but, back four as shit. We can go yeah. after them, but leave ourselves exposed.
3: Yeah, exactly. But also, you know, they're they're leaking goals quite a bit, and also it, it depends what Chelsea's genuine aspirations are. If they're really going for the top four, um, which they're talking about, draws are no good to them. They've got to come and beat us if they want that, um, and maybe that. Makes them a bit more open, but then again, if I were sitting, I would think, you know, we're probably more likely to win if we keep it tight and then try and get one goal or something. Um, so I'm, I'm really not sure what, what to expect. I think we should be beating this Chelsea team. I think, um, had we played them perhaps a few weeks later than we did earlier in the season, I think this kind of psychological thing we have with Chelsea and maybe Mourinho might have been. Might not have been there, you know, because the season had just started and the rot hadn't really, really set in. If we'd played them a month later, when they'd lost another couple of games, I think we might have really fancied it and gone for them more than we did, mm. um, you know. And, and perhaps they'll feel kind of confident enough to do that this time. Um, but I, I really don't know what to expect out of this one. Um, but I'm with you. I, I think it's a must-win. And listen, if you're going for the league title. Uh, get used to the phrase "must win" because that's that's just a symptom of being up there, and um, you know, enjoy it. That's you know, it's it's nice to go into a game as a must win rather than you know, who really cares what happens? Um, yeah, what's
1: what's wrong with taking the title challenge by the throat and exactly. saying let's let's win it with eighty five points, not yeah. hey, we can drop a bunch of points and win it with seventy six this year?
3: Yeah, exactly. Let's let's look at it like oh well, you know, if we drop a couple of points here, it's not too bad. No bollocks. Let's like. Try and win every single game, um, but I suppose to finish, I, I'd ask a question of both of you in um, in fairy tale land. What would you rather? Would you rather we smash Chelsea four or five nil, or would you rather we beat them one nil in the ninety-six minute with an offside goal?
1: <laughs> yeah, now now that Mourinho's not there, I'll take the five or six nil. Let's let's get some form because we're you know we're gonna need that for when we knock Barcelona out of the Champions League.
3: Paul,
2: uh, that's a pretty good answer. Um, I think that's right. Uh, I I really love the question, but the timing's wrong. I don't have people I hate, and I you know I hate Chelsea, but I don't hate this particular Chelsea quite as much as I did the one that that kind of just Oof. left the room. Oof. So
1: I, Ram- I you- Ram- Ramirez Sesk. well, I don't, I don't have the SES thing. Most people I, I, do, but Diego Costa, yeah, Hazard. But it's
2: not Mourinho.
1: That- John Terry, you, you know, actually I did want to ask a quick question to both of you just really quick before we wrap up. There's not a center back pairing. I think Giroud has, has struggled with as much as he struggled with the Terry Cahill center back pairing. Mm. Any thought if Alexis is prepared to start, if he starts, any thought about going back to Theo at center forward, given that Giroud, has has really struggled and, and just been totally taken out of games by those centre-backs, Tim?
3: Yeah, I, I'd definitely consider it if Alexis was starting, yeah, Parti- particularly because you've got Ivanovic there as well. We did it at Stamford Bridge in September, and I think it was starting to look quite promising. Theo got in a couple of times in behind, and sometimes the ball was slightly overhit or a bit wide, but I think he worried them until the red card. I, I'd definitely give it some thought, Yeah. Paul, uh,
2: I mean, w- you're, you're always up for a little Theo. Would I? Yes. Do I think we will? No. So no, what, I, I just bet yeah. would you? Would I? Right. Yes. Look,
1: we're we're crossing over an hour, which is you know longer than my mom likes to listen to this. So let's let's wrap it up. Um, I'm all for the five-nil win against Chelsea, but we'll take the one-nil offside ninety-fourth minute winner. Um, I want to express just how. Much I appreciate both of you coming on here and and discussing the Stoke match because it really was a thing of beauty. Um, first of all, Tim, who was brave enough to go there, write about uh, his musings on our blog and and generally tweet great tweets on Twitter at Stilberto uh, is where to find him. Tim, thanks.
3: My pleasure as always.
1: I assure you, the pleasure was mine. And Paul, who watches games uh, several times so that you don't have to, you can find him on Twitter at in My Pants. Thanks, Paul.
2: Pleasure. Thanks, guys.
1: My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I see some of you have. I came across a gentleman today who had blocked me on Twitter. So job well done. He won't be able to hear or see this because he probably doesn't like me much, but he, he nailed it. Um, all right. We're going to call it a day. Please leave us a review on iTunes if you don't mind. Five stars followed by all the nasty things you think about me and all the nice things you think about them. Uh, we will be back after the 5-0 at Chelsea and uh, look forward to speaking to you then. Cheers. <laughs>